You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. You gotta ask yourself one question, punk. What the hell is a cigar nerd? Welcome to the Cigar Nerds Podcast. It's the only show where two guys smoke cigars and talk about nerd culture. Do you like movies, games, comics, sci-fi, pop culture, and beer? Do you like science, nerd news, explosions for no apparent reason? Then this is the show for you. It's like being in a nerdy cigar shop, but for your ears. Check us out at CigarNerdPodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Monster Attack, the podcast dedicated to old monster movies. Well, we're going back to the Halls of Hammer for this week's episode. Yeah, we are glad to be back. Thanks to Mark Maddox for sitting in with us uh, last week on our uh, return back after a three-month uh, break. Oh my goodness, I'll tell you folks, I, I'm going to be talking about this one for quite a while. Uh, never did I ever dream that uh, we would be gone for that long of time and uh, get such nice letters and everything from all of you all listening. So we are back. We're back for a long, long time. And we're going to talk about a movie. I'm going to do something a little different than I've done uh, for most of this season. And that is I'm going to talk about a movie that I have not talked about before. You know, we've been revisiting a lot of films from the 1950s. But this time I'm going to jump into the 1960s, 1967, as a matter of fact, for a Hammer film that doesn't always get a lot of discussion. In fact, uh, when you when you talk to a lot of monster kids, sometimes this one doesn't come up all the time, but it has developed a following over the last few years. I think people, especially like me, have discovered just how good this film is. Now, Hammer made a total of seven Frankenstein movies. This one was supposed to be number three, following The Curse of Frankenstein and The Revenge of Frankenstein. But uh, because of a, a situation that, this kind of thing you read about in Hollywood all the time, with another movie coming out that had a similar title, uh, it got postponed for a few years. Now, you might recall that in the 1950s, Roger Vadim released a film with Bridget Bardot called And God Created Woman. Well, originally, the uh, Hammer folks were going to call Frankenstein Created Woman. Well, they producers thought maybe that sounded a little bit too similar to Roger Vadim's film, and they didn't want uh, audiences to get confused over the two. So, and you know, you know how conservative uh, production companies can get. They decided to hold this film uh, up a little bit. And so The Evil of Frankenstein was released instead as number three, and then this one came in at number four in 1967. Now, when this film was released, uh, it did decently in, in the big theaters. It, it actually 
I guess technically, as you figure the marketing and all this, uh, lost a little bit of money, but then has made it up over the years and has made uh, a little bit of money and uh, has also improved in the critics' ratings of it. Of course, you know us, we don't, uh, we don't always pay a whole lot of attention to what critics say. But this was a film that I did not see when it first came out. And this was at a time that uh, I was really getting into Hammer film. I had seen uh, Revenge of Frankenstein, which was actually the first one I saw. I saw that before Curse of Frankenstein. So it's always become sort of a, a favorite. Uh, and then Curse of Frankenstein. And then this one uh, came out again in 67. I was uh, just starting junior high school when it came out. And uh, I was at a at a point where I could hop the bus. I was still living in Auburn, New York. I could go down to the theater that showed all the Hammer film and uh, and see them on my own. But this one escaped. I'm not sure if it was because that either the Auburn uh, Theater or the Palace Theater didn't run this film. Uh, Palace is actually where I saw a couple of Hammer film. Uh, the Auburn Theater would run the Saturday matinees uh, that would run the double bills. They'd run the double bills uh, with a short feature. Uh, inserted in between and uh, that's where i saw the reptile and some others like that but i don't remember this movie coming to auburn now i'm not sure if it was because i wasn't interested in it or uh if it just didn't come to the city but it was uh probably college before i actually saw this film on television uh you know on a on a i don't think it was monster movie matinee i think it was it might have been cbs late night or something very similar to that because uh, by this, this time, by the time I was in college, uh, monster movies were starting to gain in popularity. And so some of the bigger networks were running them from time to time. But CBS Late Night seemed to have a hold on most of the Hammer film that I had seen before. So I'm thinking that's where I may have seen it the first time. Now, going in, I remember my attitude towards it. I figured this was going to be... Uh, sort of a, a Hammer's take on The Bride of Frankenstein. So that's what I was sort of expecting, that maybe we would see the monster, and I'm not sure if it was going to be uh, Christopher Lee or Kiwi Kingston at this point, but uh, we would see the monster, and somehow he would bend Frankenstein's arm behind his back and say, I want a woman, and uh, you know, we would get a Bride of Frankenstein story. But we didn't get that at all. Now, initially, uh, audiences did not take to this movie. Uh, like they did the first three Hammer Frankenstein films. And I think part of it was that this film is very, very different from the other Frankenstein films, at least from the first three anyway. And I think when I saw this in college, this is, this is what attracted it to me uh, the most. It also posed a, a take on the story, a Frankenstein story, that Mary Shelley came up with uh, in a much more spiritual way and a much more metaphysical way. Because up until this point, uh, Curse of Frankenstein and, and Revenge of Frankenstein and Evil of Frankenstein pretty much dealt with a cut-and-dry story where Baron Frankenstein was obsessed with creating life, and he would, he would get body parts and put them all together, and then using this energy that he had come up with, uh, some kind of electricity, you know, of course, in the in the uh, 30s, uh, Universal Frankenstein, it was lightning, because uh, at the time Mary Shelley wrote the book, you know, that was sort of an unknown type source of energy, so sort of mysterious godlike energy. But uh, the Hammer films took a little bit more uh, electricity type approach, uh, 
with electricity being the unknown variable. But the Baron would have all of these uh, uh, great gizmos and devices that create some kind of electrical current. But this is not the story that we're going to see in Frankenstein Created Woman. Now, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of you out here who may not have seen this movie. So I do want to warn you that in our discussion of Frankenstein Created Woman, uh, I'm going to spoil a whole lot of it. In fact, probably most of it. So you may want to hunt down a copy of this. It's very easy to find on the streaming services. You know, a lot of places you can see it for free. Uh, it, it has gotten much more popular over the years. And uh, there's some really good restorations out there on, on the free uh, sites, on the uh, free streaming site. So uh, check it out first and then come back and visit us here on Monster Attack. Because I really don't, I, I think there's some great hooks in this uh, in this movie and I don't want to spoil it for you. So you have been forewarned, spoilers all the way. This is a Terrence Fisher film. Uh, he was the director. Of course, he was the go-to director for Hammer for uh, a lot of their early films. And uh, he does not disappoint. Uh, the film was written by uh, John Elder, who wrote a lot of Hammer films. And, uh, produced by, uh, by, uh, Anthony Nelson Keyes. So, you know, you had the, the brain trust, the big brain trust that, that was behind most of the great Hammer films, uh, for those of us who grew up during this time period. But getting back to what I was talking about, how this film took a much different approach than the, the standard, uh, Frankenstein films Hammer had done before that. This was not about putting body parts together and using this, uh, mysterious electrical uh, current or, or energy that the Baron invented or, or discovered, I should say, uh, to make his, his bodies come to life. In this one, uh, we, we open up with a uh, with an experiment. We're in a small town. Uh, it's never identified what town we are in, but I'm going to assume, like many others, that it was Switzerland. And why do I say that? Well, I, I got a heads up from one of my film books. Uh, there's a coat of arms that you see during this movie. And it's a coat of arms for uh, one of the cannons in Switzerland, uh, for Bern, as a matter of fact. But they never say that outright. But it makes sense. Uh, and, and it's going to be a location that you're going to uh, recognize uh, because it was the same location that Hammer used for uh, one of the Dracula films and, and one of my all-time favorites. Dracula has risen from the grave. And you'll notice again in some other Hammer movies, this is a town, a little town that they uh, uh, set that they've used in many of their films. So it's very familiar, but immediately uh, Dracula has risen from the grave, jumped right out to me the first time that I saw this. Uh, a very, very familiar looking little city. So, except you're not running across the rooftops, like <laughs> only in one scene, only in one scene in this movie. So. Uh, it, it feels like at home and it takes place around a, uh, a small inn. But let me get back to uh, my original point here. I'm making a, a short story long. The Baron, uh, has teamed up with the doctor from the town. And this is where you're going to see, you know, now that, now that we have told you that this was originally going to be the follow up to the Revenge of Frankenstein, where it starts making sense how you, you can see how they just had to slightly adapt the script. Once they delayed this to make it fit with the evil of Frankenstein instead of the Revenge of Frankenstein follow. If you remember in Revenge of Frankenstein, we have a, a young assistant who has come to the Count's aid. Or, well, I'm calling him a Count for the Baron's uh, aid uh, after he is beaten up in the uh, 
in the clinic that he's running in this small town. And and again, uh, now he becomes Dr. Frank after the assistant saves his life and, and, and puts his brain in a new body, which looks suspiciously also like uh, Peter Cushing with a big uh, mustache. And uh, so from going from Dr. Stein to Dr. Frank, I know I'm rambling on, but most of you are very, very familiar with the, that story. Uh, this is a different doctor played by Thorley Waters. And uh, so we've got an older, an older doctor in this small town, and he's been helping uh, the Baron with his experiments. But these are not ex- experiments uh, where they're taking body parts out of graves and things of that nature. This experiment uh, begins with, uh, with Thorley Waters. A character unfreezing the count. The count has become the subject of his experiment. So uh, you know we see a different side of Frankenstein. Uh, by the way, Doctor uh, Doctor Hertz is the name of Thoroughly Walter's character, and Peter Cushing in this goes by his uh, full character name, Baron Victor Frankenstein. So we also have to assume that they that he is living in a town that is not familiar with what has transpired before. As you remember, he was nearly guillotined, or we thought he was guillotined at the end of Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, he was able to uh, make some bribes and stuff here and there where he escapes that, and that sets the table for the revenge of Frankenstein. And of course, then again, revenge of Frankenstein, he nearly loses his life getting beat up, and uh, his assistant saves his life and changes, uh, you know, puts him in a new body, and now uh, and, and is off and running at the end of that movie. Evil of Frankenstein is sort of almost a standalone film on its own. So you, you can, I can see the, the pickup once I learned that this was originally going to be the, the follow up to Revenge of Frankenstein. I could see the jump up a little bit, uh, with some years going by. But why is, is Baron Frankenstein being frozen? He takes an entirely different approach to the experiments he was doing. Yes, he, he is, he is interested in creating a human, but now we're taking a different tack. And this is the thing I think may have turned off some of the fans of the earlier Hammer films, of the earlier Hammer Frankenstein films, because we're not dealing with just putting body parts together and then bringing them to life. Now we're dealing with taking a person who has died recently and capturing their soul. Yes, I know it sounds a little out there. It does sound a little crazy, but the metaphysical aspect of this really intrigued me uh, by the time I was college age and watching this film for the first time. Because now he's he's dealing with something far more metaphysical, some, something far more spiritual. And, and he realizes, okay, the soul, what is the soul? The soul is a source of energy, and it's the energy that makes us sort of unique. And it's the energy that, that takes the flesh of the body and makes it a living, unique being. And he has this theory that this energy, which cannot be destroyed, because actually scientifically we know energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be altered or changed a, a little bit, but it's still energy. That we, we have no way of actually destroying it. Th- this energy can be can be stored and put into uh, another another uh, body and bring it back to life that way. Okay, that intrigued me quite a bit because I said, this is a whole different approach to the Frankenstein story. So what he is doing is, is trying to figure out at what point can you capture this energy before it goes somewhere else that, that, that is, makes it unavailable to be captured. And he, this is what he's doing with the freezing experiments. He puts himself in almost a state of suspended animation. Or he, he almost technically kills himself 
and we see uh, we see Doctor Hertz. You know, Daddy, he has now has a new younger assistant, uh, also helping uh, helping he and the Baron out. He pulls uh, Frankenstein out of this freezing apparatus that the Baron obviously has invented, uh, and he is able to spark him back to life using some of the gizmos that we have seen in the earlier Frankenstein films, and he does it at precisely one hour. So. If it had been possible to not capture the, the, the soul or whatever, uh, anyway, this is, I'm trying to think how I want to say this. Uh, from this experiment with the, with the Baron coming to, uh, he realizes that he has an hour to capture this energy. So that's the whole key. It's early in the morning, folks, and I'm stumbling over my words a little bit, but bear with me. So this whole new approach makes this film. A very unique film. And now when I talk to people about this movie, which doesn't get, like I said, doesn't get talked a lot about uh, when you're talking about Hammer, uh, a Frankenstein film, they are also attracted to this film because it is so different than the others. It's very well written and very well acted. Let's tell you a little bit about our cast. And as I already mentioned, Thorley Waters. Of course, Thorley Waters was a, a staple in, in Hammer Productions. I think my, my favorite character for him was uh, uh, probably in uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Where he is the uh, is sort of the, sort of the nutty guy in the monastery who comes under the spell of, of Count Dracula, uh, but he is seen in in so many other Hammer films. Uh, what a wide range of performance uh, that he gives! He was even in another Frankenstein film that would follow this. One. Uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed, which you've heard me say on many occasions, including the show that we did on it years ago. That uh, I still think it is my favorite all time. Uh, Frankenstein film from Hammer Films. That and Revenge of Frankenstein uh, are my one and two. This is probably going to be my number three. And then uh, another one that we've not talked about, Frankenstein and the Monster of Hell, which I think is a very underrated film. Mark and I are going to be talking about that one later on this season. So this one sort of falls into that category as a film that's really, really was underappreciated when it came out, but has developed a new respect from audiences you know, over the years. I guess you just have to be around uh, for for like uh, 55 years because this this film has celebrated its 55th anniversary last year. Uh, I guess you got to be around for 55 years before you get any kind of appreciation. Uh, some of the other people you're going to see in here, you're going to see some familiar faces. Uh, although this one, Robert Morris, Robert Morris was in a few films here and there, uh, but he, he was one that we don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, there's, uh, probably three films that he is best known for, but this one in God, or in God created woman. Here we go. Uh, Frankenstein created woman and also Quatermass in the pit are the two he's going to be best known for. He cut his career short and just sort of dropped out of sight. And he plays the, uh, the young, uh, male lead in this. He's the one that's assisting the Baron and Dr. Hertz. And he has a love interest with our, uh, with our lead female in the film and uh, this is going to play a critical part in this in the story because she is the woman susan denberg is the actress and uh susan uh, inter interesting gal because up until a few years ago a lot of people thought she had died and uh, she did not do many films she was a playboy playmate she was a very successful model uh she was the uh, the august of uh, 1966 uh, playboy playmate got into acting uh spurred by a couple of agents who got her in this. Uh, you don't hear her in this film uh, because her voice is dubbed. Susan was uh, had a very thick Austrian accent, and the producers thought 
that uh, it, it was just a little bit too hard for people to understand. So uh, she, her voice was dubbed over. So I, I don't believe I have ever heard her actual speaking voice. She only has five uh, five credits on her resume. She did do uh, a, an episode of the original Star Trek, uh, where she played a character by the name of Maggie. Uh, she was uh, also made an appearance on the television shows The Wackiest Ship in the Army and 12 O'Clock High, the TV shows, not the movie. And, uh, and one of the last films that she did was this one. She had done one prior to this called All-American Dream, which I confess I have not seen. And then, uh, you know, she, she got out of the business. And uh, for many years, the rumors went around that, that she was suicidal, that she was strung out on drugs. Uh, and she had done a uh, an interview, a magazine interview, where she talked about how she had used LSD and had been had suicidal thoughts, was living uh, with her mother at her uh, Austrian home in Klagenfurt, Austria. So people just assumed, oh, she must have died, either taken her own life or something of that nature. But she didn't. She's still with us today. She she found out about some of these rumors and said, no, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm doing fine and I'm living in uh, I'm living in Austria and she is doing. Uh, just fine. So uh, she is not acting anymore and, uh, you know, just uh, living a normal life. But a beautiful, beautiful gal who, uh, I, and I want to I want to pay tribute a little bit to, uh, to our makeup people in this, because in the beginning, uh, we find out that she is a character and born with some serious deformity. Christine is her character's name, and she is the daughter of the uh, the man who runs the, uh, the inn that most of the uh, most of this takes place. We, we, we've discovered that she has this horrible uh, disfigurement of her face. So she's got long, dark hair. Now, Susan is a natural blonde, so they had to, had to change her hair color just for that. She wears it sort of like a, a I'm trying to think of Veronica Lake type style. She's got a major part covering one cheek because it's the cheek of the uh, left eye and, and that, and that area around there that uh, she is trying to keep people from seeing because it's severely deformed. And she also walks with a very severe limp. And so that causes her to become the, uh, the subject of ridicule from some of the, the rich guys that hang around the inn. And we will talk about those guys in just a few moments here. So, uh, Christine, you know, is, is the love interest of Hans, who is uh, played by, by Robert Morris, and he, he, he overlooks the whole thing. You know, he, he doesn't care about the deformity, he just loves the woman. And, and you can still tell there's a real beauty there, even, even with these deformity. But she, she does the role very, very well. I mean, very believable, uh, when you see that, uh, with the, with the limp that she's walking with, when you finally do get to see, uh, how her face looks, and it, and it's pretty awful. So, uh, this is this is going to come into play in a major story. Now let's get to our three uh, <laughs> sort of bad guys. They're they're rich, you know. They're they're rich guys. They're they're probably in their early twenties. Uh, so you know they look down on everybody in the town, uh, you know, because they they feel like they're better than everybody else. Uh, you know, they've been spoiled rotten. Uh, so they make make fun of Christina a lot. They come into the inn. Uh, they tell her father, uh, "We want Christina." serve us. Uh, and this is one interesting thing about this the, the storyline. I don't know if this is how it used to work back then in the 19th century, or this could be in the 18th century. Actually, I think this was 18th century. People would just come and go in these inns, and, and you know, the, if, the, if the innkeeper wanted to go to bed, he just went to bed. <laughs> and you, uh, uh, you know, I, I, 
we see that in this where they, uh, you know, these guys want to drink all night. And uh, so, uh, you know, the, uh, the innkeeper played by Alan McNaughton, again, another very familiar face from British cinema and British TV. He, you know, if he wants to go to bed, he can go to bed and he just leaves them on their own. I don't know. I, I may have read that wrong the few times I've seen this movie, but it just seemed like people had their way with this inn more times than not, except for one particular instance where uh, Cleve actually does lock the inn up uh, because they live in another uh, another area or whatever. So anyway, these are just little things that I picked up these last few times watching it. It's like, sort of, these guys just, you know, everybody's sort of leaving and uh, they're staying there and just, but the, the three are Anton, Johan, and Carl. Anton is the ringleader. So he's obviously the one probably from the, from the most well-to-do family, uh, but they're all dressed to the nines and all that. But Anton seems to call all the shots. He, he makes a lot of fun of Christina uh, you know, and, and, it, you know, it, it's real passive aggressive type stuff to a certain extent. You know, you know, show us, you know, walk over, it makes her walk over to them, uh, because of this pronounced limp, you know, oh, show us your beautiful walk. And we want to see your beautiful face. And yeah, yeah. And it's just, just horrendous. And of course, uh, the night in question that they show up, uh, during the movie here, Hans is there as well. He has been sent out by, uh, by the Baron and, uh, to, to get some champagne to celebrate this discovery that the Baron has made that he has one hour where he can, you know, if he can get a person within one hour of their death, he can save their soul. Uh, in a sense, he can, he can put their soul uh, in a device, in this device that he has and store it until he can find a new body form. So like I said, this is a totally different take on the, on the old Frankenstein approach uh, that we've seen in Hammer films before. And then when you think about it, you know, think about this. And, and I just when I said that, I'm thinking, I mean, that this has been the one thing. This was the one thing that Mary Shelley wrote about in the book that, you know, Baron Frankenstein was uh, was trying to play God. And this was the big you know, the, the criticism and thing that this is a domain you do not mess with uh, because this is beyond us. This is not something that humans should be having anything to do with. And in a sense now, even more so, he is becoming a, a godlike. Figure, if you think about it, he is saving saving a soul for uh, for to put into another body. So I think I I, I love uh, some of the uh, some of the issues that are dealt with here. Anyway, going through um, quickly through, uh, I mentioned one thing about the character of Hans. We find out at the very beginning of this movie, and again, I'm jumping all over the storyline. At the very beginning of the movie, Hans is a small child, and his father has been accused of murder. And uh, he has been sentenced to death, and uh, he watches his father be executed at the, at the guillotine. Of course, you know, guillotines figured in heavy in the, in the Curse of Frankenstein, the evil of Frankenstein. So they continue. That's that's why you know we were assuming this was France, maybe at first, because they you know the guillotine was invented there, but uh, very easily could have been Switzerland as well. But he will, he 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 sees his father uh, executed. Now his father. Is played by an old time uh, actor who uh, was in a, a lot of Hammer films, Duncan Lamont. And uh, Duncan Lamont, we actually saw uh, also in the uh, in the uh, Revenge of Frankenstein, and he played uh, one of the patients or one of the guys helping with the patients in the clinic. And uh, you know, he had a little heavy taste for booze and and that sort of thing. And was a guy he didn't really trust, but he did a lot of the dirty work at the parents' clinic. Very again, another very familiar face and a very popular character actor from Hammer Films. As you said, like I said, you will see so many people uh, in this movie uh, 
but th- these are your main characters. So it's a very, very small list of, of, of people in this. Now, uh, getting back to, to Antoine, Johan, and Carl. Antoine was played by Peter Blythe. Huge, uh, career in Great Britain. And again, uh, a few Hammer films, a lot of British television. So he's going to be one you might recognize from some of the TV shows that came across from Great Britain to here. And the uh, same here with uh, uh, Derek Folds, who plays Johan, and Barry Warren, who played Carl. These were all guys that they didn't do a whole lot in the United States, but you're going to recognize some of them because British television became so popular here over the years. So if you get a hold of some old 60s British TV shows, uh, chances are you're going to see these guys pop up in them. They all all had uh, very, very lengthy careers. But Anton uh, you know, really is is the main principal in this because he runs the show. When the three of them are there, uh, in the end, uh, he runs the show. And uh, you know, he's just brutal on Christina. And you get the impression that he was a bully probably as a kid growing up, and he's got you know, he's got uh, Johan and Carl under his thumb. He probably was a, was a bully to them as, as a child. That's why they hang with him so tight and so loyal to him. And they're hanging out, and they're, they get into a fight uh, with Hans. And, uh, it, you know, they, the knives come out. Antoine gets cut. He gets his nose cut uh, by Hans, who, who runs off. And then, of course, uh, Cleve goes to the police. He, he leaves these guys at the <laughs> at the inn to do whatever they want. You know, and they've torn the place up pretty pretty badly, torn up some of the some of the furniture and that sort of thing. Uh, Cleve goes off to get to the police, and now they you know they suspect that uh, you know they they've got to go find Hans because Hans has been known for uh, getting into a little bit of trouble from time to time. And again, they, this goes back to him witnessing his father's uh, execution and having you know live in this town. Uh, as the son of a murderer. Well, during, what ends up happening is Hans ends up with Christina. He goes over to her home. Uh, you know, he's got a way he can get into her bedroom. It's a second story bedroom without the father finding out. They have a little tay to tay, a little intimate get together, uh, where we, we see more of the relationship between the two of them because she's just so upset with the way she looks. She doesn't believe anybody could ever love her. She's still stunned that Hans doesn't seem bothered at all by her deformities, uh, you know, or any of that. Uh, and she considers herself just very ugly. And, uh, you know, he keeps trying to tell her, no, I, you know, I see the beauty inside of you. And that's what I love. And uh, while he is there, Cleve, uh, after he shows back up uh, with the police and they have left, Closes up the inn, Anton, Johan, and Carl. They want to go terrorize Christina some more, but uh, after uh, getting quite drunk, they get back to the inn. They want to steal some of the, the booze there so they can continue partying. Uh, they are caught by Cleve, uh, and what ends up happening is Anton ends up killing Cleve. Now, when Cleve's body is found the next morning, uh, of course, Hans doesn't know anything about it because he, is, he has been with Christine. He shows back up at the inn. Uh, after leaving Christine, uh, you want to make sure she's okay. He's going to check in on her. And, uh, the police are there. And of course, he is the immediate suspect. Uh, and, you know, the police immediately say, where were you last night? And he won't tell them. He says, I can't tell you. And of course, that automatically makes him sound guilty, but he doesn't want to tell them that he was with Christina because he doesn't want to leave the father to find out. So, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he, he wants to protect, uh, Christina because he knows the father, uh, doesn't approve of him because of his background, because of the fact that his father was was executed for murder. And so uh, he is put on trial, and he is found guilty 
of murder and is sentenced to be executed in the same manner that his father was by the guillotine. At, at this time, Christina has gone off. She is with a, she's gone off to a, a, a visit a family member outside of the town. Uh, so she is unaware of this happening until she is coming back from her trip and she sees uh, the execution uh, going underway. And, uh, of course, uh, they have given Hans every opportunity to say, all you have to do is tell us what you did that night, where you were. You know, that's all you would have to do. But he says, no, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. And he's going to take this to the grave. Uh, he is going to protect Christina all the way. Uh, and she sort of knows that's what's happening here. And she makes a run uh, for the guillotine and doesn't make it in time. And uh, Hans is killed. And, of course, the uh, the Baron goes into action with, with Dr. Hertz. It's like, hey, this is just exactly what we wanted. We can save this boy. We can save his soul, this energy that's inside of him we've got. And they have they've managed a Hertz. Yes, Hertz bribe uh, the, the people that are the coroner and the uh, the people that run the morgue or whatever. And, uh, and it says, we need the body just for an hour. We just need it for an hour, and then we'll bring it back. And in doing that, they're able it to the, uh, the Baron's laboratory in time, and they were able to capture this energy now. And now they've got it. So he's got now some energy that he can hold there until he finds a body to put it in. Well, guess what? Obviously, you've seen this a mile away. This is where this film gets really, really different from any of the other Hammer Frankenstein films. Because Christine is so beside herself that she commits suicide. She jumps off a cliff, and uh, the townspeople, some of the townspeople, find her body floating in the water a few hours later. Now, that's key because you know she's been dead too long for them to do the same thing that they did for Hans. Save, save this energy, the spirit that's in her. It's already been an hour, so it's gone. You know, they bring the body to Doctor Hertz to see if there's anything he can do, and he says, "Well, bring her in. We'll see what we can do." And he knows exactly what's going to happen. The Baron's going to want to put the essence or the soul or this energy of Hans into her. And that's what they do. And they also, uh, the Baron, who is, again, established over all of these these uh, films as a brilliant surgeon, is able to uh, to correct the uh, the maladies that Christine suffered from. He's able to, to fix her, her, her legs, fix her face. So you know, she looks totally different. Now we see Susan Denberg as... She actually is, and her hair is now blonde. And they and they say something about that. They make reference to it in the movie, that it had something to do with them putting this essence back into her. You've got the soul of a man, Hans, in the body of a woman. And, of course, when she, uh, when she comes to, uh, when she reaches consciousness, she has no memory of anything. She, she just knows. She knows what her, her name is. Uh, that's all they will tell her. They don't tell her anything about who she is. And then this is where the strange stuff starts happening. Starts hearing voices, hear Hans's voice. And he is obsessed with getting revenge on Anton, Johan, and Carl. And then it becomes a pure revenge. But it's Christina who is doing the murdering. And I got to tell you, you know, I know she didn't, she didn't do a whole lot of acting. She is directed so well by, by this part of the film, by Terrence Fisher. Uh, it's not over the top. And I talk about this a lot. It, it, it's such a subtle performance uh, when she becomes the murderess. And of course, she, and she doesn't remember any of these murders are. You know, she's still in this transition where she doesn't really know who she is. 
and this is going over a period of a few weeks, that they're keeping her fairly, you know, fairly hidden uh, from the rest of the town. Don't let her, don't let the town know who she is. But to make this long story short, because it's the whole buildup to this, you know what the buildup's coming, coming to. The Baron realizes that uh, she's the one that's murdering, making, doing all these murders in town. Uh, because one, you know, the, the three guys had this run in with Hans and, uh, they're just some giveaways that it, this is the spirit of Hans who, who's doing this. And when she realizes it finally, that this is, that she is responsible for the movie, the movie moves very, very quickly and she ends up on the same cliff where Christine committed suicide and she throws herself back into the water and kills her. And the movie ends with the Baron walking away quietly, thinking, "Well, the the theory worked, but uh, what I did was not was was totally wrong." We assume now that the, maybe the Baron has lost uh, has learned a lesson uh, this time, and we'll go back to the other approach that he. It's all implied, but I assume that now he will go go back to his original approach, which we will see in the next movie that comes out two years later with Frankenstein must be destroyed. So, Frankenstein created woman. Uh, like I said, a totally different take on the Frankenstein story. And and every time I see this movie, and I watch it a couple of times, getting ready to do this uh, weeks ago, I get more and more impressed with it. I, you know, I look at some of the, the fine touches that are in the scripting and in the direction and, and how this plays in the chemistry between uh, the major characters in this film. It's just brilliant. It, it, it's really, really strong. And at no time does this movie get cheesy or goofy. Uh, of course, a lot of the Hammer Frankenstein films didn't. Uh, it is a violent film. Uh, so you got a lot of murders in here and you got two executions as well. So parents be forewarned on that one. But I, I don't, you don't really see anything as far as, you know, blatant. You know, this isn't a graphic film. Uh, most of it is, is implied put in your mind which uh, makes it a much more powerful film. But as I look at some of the some of the subject matter in here about, you know, a man and a woman's body. Uh this is this is, you know, some uh, discussion socially going on now in this world there's some stuff in here that's very prophetic uh in some ways. And um I it gained a, I, I, the movie gained a new appreciation for me for some of the the issues that they did deal with because it was it was quite uh uh, quite unique. Of course, obviously, the the issue of uh, judging a book by its cover and all of that is all prevalent throughout this film. But it, it's a very engaging film. And uh, once I finally got a chance to see it, it was like, oh, I like this movie. It was released here in March of 1967. And again, I don't think it ever came to any of the movie theaters I lived near uh, when I was up there. So, like I said, I saw it in college and it was part of a late night TV show. So, uh, it's well worth a look. And again, you know, the Hammer films, uh, when it comes to Frankenstein, are, are really uh, unparalleled. Uh, the film that replaced this one in the order, The Evil of Frankenstein, uh, I liked. I, I liked all of the Frankenstein movies. Uh, it's not the strongest of them. And now, when I look back on it, and it's like, you know, that one did just sort of feel like it, it was out of place. Now I understand why, because they had to, they had to get one out there. And I won't say they rushed it, but, uh, but they, you know, they, they had to get one out there to take the place of this film until they would bring this film back out and make a few little changes in it so that people wouldn't confuse it with Vadim's 
and God created woman. Anyway, Frankenstein created woman. We will probably visit this one again because I know Mark thinks a lot of this film. And, uh, you know, I haven't talked to Madeline about it or Clay. Uh, but this is, this is one of those movies that you got to come back and talk about over and over again because every time you see it, you, you sort of see something different in it. So uh, check it out. And uh, thanks for your support. And next week, we're back again with more episodes of Monster Attack. And uh, folks, I promise you, I'm not going to take any kind of log breaks like we did before. Uh, thank you so much for your support uh, financially and uh, morally uh, and everything. We really appreciate it. We we still had people listening to the show during the three months we were not on the air. Uh, with with uh, new episodes, so we really, really do appreciate uh, everything you guys have done to make Monster Attack what it is. Have a great week, and hey, we're going to be back with you again. So, Brittany, Martha... <laughs> Tell me about your podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like we're in sync, but also kind of a disaster. We are always a disaster. So our podcast is fun if you want to hear two people talk about and complain about stuff that <laughs> a they lot of love and also hate. And drink. And drink. And the show is called? Oh. <laughs> but, but first, let's, let's talk, talk nerdy. And you can find us on the ESO Network. Bye-bye. See you next Tuesday. <laughs> This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.